Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Desire the unadulterated milk of the word, like a newborn baby, that you may grow thereby. His divine power has given to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, which have given to us uh, many great and precious promises, that by them we may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption which is in the world through lust. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. Before we open God's word together, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we come together to study your word, to understand in somewhat of a better way our our, um, Lord's work on the cross, that we study his substitutionary work for us in our place, a doctrine that is often misunderstood and challenged from uh, from the left in theology, and one that is often ignored. Help us to understand this teaching as it is reflected throughout Scripture. We pray this in Christ's name, Amen. This we okay. At this time, um, I want you to open your Bibles to. Genesis 22. We will get there shortly, but we'll have a little review, first of all, in our passage in Ephesians chapter 5 as we talk about divine uh, uh, substitutionary atonement. So we come to Ephesians 5 as we've been studying this. The first uh, two verses actually are split badly, identified poorly in the way the versification takes place in this chapter, 5.1 is the conclusion of the previous chapter, and 5.2 starts with a new command to walk in love, walk by means of love, which means to live our life on the basis of love or by means of Christ's love. It emphasizes that day by day, moment by moment, step by step, uh, living of the Christian life. As we think our way through the issues of life and relating to other people, we are to walk by means of love. Now, you'll find a lot of so-called love theology going on as a result of the shift to modern liberalism. There's a lot of talk of love that is totally divorced from the scriptures. The pattern for love is clearly stated here in the next clause, as Christ also has loved us, and given himself for us. That's the pattern, understanding the substitutionary uh, death of Christ on the cross. This is one of the key passages, the central passages that um, theologians go to to substantiate the teaching of Scripture that Christ died in our place. He died as an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. So those words that are emphasized there tell us that this has some sort of of um, background in the sacrifices and offerings of the Old Testament. Twice in this verse we have the word for love, both the noun and the verb. We walk by means of love is the noun. The verb is agapao, as Christ loved us. 
And love is not an emotion. As we have seen, I talked about the fact that forgiveness was not an emotion. Forgiveness was not a feeling. Love is not a feeling. Love is not an emotion. Now, there may be an emotional element to it at times, but that's not the core meaning of biblical love. It is a mental attitude grounded upon an understanding of what Christ did for us on the cross. And we see that it is this pattern that is constantly referred to in the New Testament when we see commands related to love. For example, in John 13. And John 13, the whole chapter is significant because it relates forgiveness of one another to love. It relates God's forgiveness of us to his love. And this is often missed, and there's often a misinterpretation of what Christ is doing when he is washing the disciples' feet as an act of service. Well, it may be that, but it goes far beyond that. It starts, the, the chapter begins in John 13, 1, now before the Feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from the world to the Father, Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So what we see here, this not only introduces chapter 13, it is introducing what we will see uh, through from 13 through the uh, end of the uh, gospel in John 21. So this is a very important, uh, very important passage. So... He repeats this at the end of the 13th chapter. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you. Note this comparison. The love that we are to have for one another is one that is patterned, that's patterned, follows that of Christ's sacrifice for us on the cross. And that is a sign of being a disciple, a believer who is growing and maturing. John fifteen twelve, Jesus repeats this again. Um, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. And the next verse, he goes on to say, greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. Now that preposition for, as we'll talk about it later, is a preposition that emphasizes substitution, doing something in in place of or for uh, its object. And again, John fifteen seventeen, he says, "These things I command you that you love one another." So this is based on the same preposition that we have here in Ephesians 5.2, down in the lower left, this preposition, pair is one of two prepositions that indicate substitution. I'll talk more about them next week. The other one is uh, peri, P-E-R-I, and that is a stronger word for substitution, and that is used in a number of places as well. But when you have huper plus the genitive, it has this idea of substitution, doing it in place of or instead of uh, someone else. 
Jesus uses this phrase a number of times in John 6:51. He says, the one who eats of this bread will live forever, and the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. In Hebrews 9, 7, reference to the Old Testament sacrifices, especially on the Day of Atonement. But into the second part, the high priest went alone once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sins committed in ignorance. Now, we'll talk a little bit about uh, the Day of Atonement uh, as we go through our understanding of the Old Testament in just a minute. So that brings us to our topic, which is what the Bible teaches about vicarious penal atonement. And so we have to understand these theological words. They're not words we use all the time. And for a lot of people, it just gets pretty confusing. So this cartoon represents that. You have Leon is playing charades uh, with a bunch of people. We don't know who they are until we read the caption. But he is, uh, he unfurls the piece of paper. He knew he would never again play charades with ministers. Try to think how you would portray substitutionary atonement in a game of charades. So these terms are the traditional theological terms. Vicarious is a term that refers to doing something for or in the place of someone else as a substitute. So vicarious is just a more... Uh, a little more archaic word that is usually just replaced by the word substitution. Penal describes the fact that it is a punishment, taking on punishment in the place of someone else. And usually it emphasizes a legal penalty. And then we have the word atonement, which is kind of interesting. I made this point with a, a pastor group of pastors the other day and was met with surprise because I said, atonement is, is a made-up word. It's not found in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew. And people just went, what? I said, yes, they didn't really understand the Hebrew word kafar, which is the word translated atonement. And so they coined a word from the word, from three words, at one met. And that was developed in Old English. And so that has become a technical theological term that either refers to the entirety of Christ's work on the cross or it refers to reconciliation. That, um, but it is not really a, an accurate translation of the of the Hebrew. The Hebrew word we'll look at in just a minute is translated in a vast number of places in the Old Testament um, when it was translated into Greek in the Septuagint with the word either the noun katharos or the verb katharizo, which means cleansing. And if you substitute cleansing for atonement in a number of these passages, they will make a lot more sense. Uh, to you. So we have to ask this question. In what sense did Christ die for our sins? 
Now, many of you have been around a while, and so when you hear Christ died for our sins, you automatically think in terms of substitutionary atonement. But that's not always been the case. In church history, there were several different attempts to define uh, what Christ did on the cross uh, and defined atonement in ways different from a penal substitution. So we go back to the early church. Sometimes I like to go back and trace the history of our understanding of certain doctrines because it gives us a certain, a little bit better perspective on some things. And it always shocks students when we go through historical theology that it took a while for uh, early Christian teachers to figure some things out. Sometimes they were pretty close early on, uh, which is the case here, when you have uh, in the second, third, fourth centuries, you have uh, uh, people who were pretty clear on a, the substitutionary idea. But then once you get into the period following the, um, the uh, early church father by the name of Origen, Origen did a few things that were helpful in the history of Christianity, but he brought a lot of sorrow into the church. He was uh, he was the one who introduced and 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 formalized allegorical interpretation, so that it wasn't literal anymore. And once you have have a non literal view of interpretation, that's going to cause uh, any number of problems. Not the least of which is that Israel no longer met Israel in the New Testament; it met the church, and in the Old Testament, is it, it was. Uh, also used as the Church of the Old Testament, which means that it laid the groundwork for the rise of Christian anti-Semitism. And that's uh, anti-Semitism itself did not begin with Christianity. Christianity absorbed that uh, in the early church. But you can trace anti-Semitism back at least as far as the time of Esther, uh, in the Old Testament. Esther the, the, is a unique book in the Bible because it's the only book in the Bible that does not mention God. There's no mention of the name of God anywhere in the book of Esther. And Esther is telling us the story about how God is tr really true to his promise to watch over and protect the Jewish people who are still his people even though they are out of the land in divine discipline. It takes place in uh, the Persian Empire when you have a, a man by the name of Mordecai who has a relative named Esther or Hadassah in the Hebrew. And there is a bad guy in the story, and this is a guy named Haman, who has worked his way up inside the, uh, the bureaucracy of the Persian government to where he has a close relationship uh, with, the, uh, with Artaxerxes, who is the king of Persia. And so Artaxerxes, in a rather uh, deceptive manner, uh, gets, um, gets Artaxerxes to sign a decree uh, to attack and to give people one day when they can take all their vengeance out on the Jewish people and wipe them out. And so um, on the on another 
theme of the story is that his wife dies, or he, or excuse me, his wife uh, embarrasses him at a party in the first chapter, so he divorces her. He's looking for a new wife, and so he has sort of a beauty contest to find the best representative, and that turns out to be uh, he chooses Esther. So he, she is put in that place, as the Scripture says, for a time like this, and shows she is able to go through a series of of uh, well-thought-through procedures, a well-thought-out strategy to where she is able to appeal to him to uh, somehow void this um, this day of of uh, attacking the Jews. Haman is virulently anti-Semitic. And so what Artaxerxes does is he says, okay, this is going to be the day when people can take out their uh, anger with the Jews and kill Jews wantonly with no penalty, but they can fight back so that um, they were all warned and they could get their weapons. And by then the tables were turned on Haman and uh, he was gloating over this uh, scaffold that was being built, and he's thinking it was for Mordecai because he was trying to frame Mordecai, and it turned out the scaffold was for him. And so it's an interesting story, but it, it's, it's, uh, it shows that God is protecting the Jewish people even when they're out of the land, even when they're not trusting God, even when there's, um, there's no mention of God anywhere uh, in the episode, yet God is invisibly in the background prote- protecting them. And so that, that, that anti-Semitism was taken over later in Christianity due to these um, allegorical interpretation ideas that came along with origin. So what do we get in the early church? By early church, I mean second century. Uh, before origin, before allegorical hermeneutics took over. Pen, uh, they use a word uh, related to uh, a penal sacrifice, understanding that there was a penalty that was paid for by Christ in our place. It's either a penalty paid to Satan as a ransom. That was an erroneous theory, but it was a theory in the early church that uh, all Christians were slaved, slaves to Satan, and so Christ's death is a ransom to free them from Satan. That is not what the Bible teaches. They did understand the concept of substitution, that Christ died in the place of sinners, the just for the unjust, and the righteous for the unrighteous. And this is especially seen in an epistle by an early church writer, Diognetus. Then you have the um, the recognition that the work was directed to the Father, not to Satan. And fourth, that Tertullian, he is the church father who coined the word Trinitas for Trinity, uh, introduced the concept of satisfaction. We would relate that to propitiation, and uh, that, that Christ died to satisfy, to pay a penalty in our place, and to satisfy the just uh, justice of God. By the time you get to Irenaeus, who is in the mid to late second century, 150 to 200, uh, that he had a re- recapitulation theory that the atonement was both penal and substitutionary. Uh, sixth, this understanding of the atonement is like much in the early church. It was simple. 
It wasn't well thought out. They just sort of quoted what Scripture said. And the word that I teach my students when I teach church history or history of doctrine is that in the that from the period 100 to about 150, if not all the way to 200, their theology is just simple and naive, and it is not. They don't explore anything. They don't ask any hard questions. They basically just say, just repeat what Scripture says without um, being analytical in their in their study. Seventh, with the advent of allegorical interpretation in the third century, the ideas of substitution became muddled and lost. And you don't get this kind of confusion again. I mean, this continues through the much of the Middle Ages, but you don't get a confusion on it again until you see the rise of, of uh, liberalism, uh, liberalism in the uh, 19th, 19th century, early early 19th century. So this is what's happening. So Irenaeus has a recapitulation theory of the atonement, which is pictured here, that Adam is the first man, the law of God is broken, and they lose eternal life. And Christ is the second man, the second Adam. He obeyed the law and regained for man what Adam lost. So that's his theory of the atonement. It has the idea of substitution and the idea of bearing our punishment in our place. Origen had the view that Satan paid a ransom to, I mean, excuse me, that Christ's death was the payment of a ransom to Satan view. And that it is uh, because he paid that penalty to Satan that man is released. He was really had some strange and even heretical ideas. Uh, it's not until you get to Anselm toward the 10th century that you have a clearly articulated theology of substitutionary atonement. He wrote a very famous work in the Latin. It was called Curdeus Homo, and it means why the God-man? And why did Jesus have to be both God and man? And it is so that he can become a curse for us. He pays the penalty in our place, and he is our substitute. But there were those in the early church that thought that was God's not fair. Why would he punish Jesus for what we did? That's not fair. See, what, what kind of, you need to ask the question, what do you mean by fair? Where do you get your concept of fairness? And they get their concept of fairness from their own idea of what would be fair, and then they evaluate the Bible on that basis. So Abelard came up with this theory called the moral encouragement. So Jesus is basically a moral example for us that we are to follow. He was willing to die for what he believed in, so we should be willing to die for what we believe in. That is that kind of an idea. The Anselmic view of substitutionary atonement was held during the Protestant Reformation by Lutherans, Calvinists, and the opposite on the theological spectrum, Arminians and Wesleyans, and also Amaraldians, those who did not believe in um, in limited atonement. Amaraldians were four-point Calvinists. They believed in um, unlimited atonement. The Abelardian view was held by Socinians and Unitarians. Those are basically the same way. Socinius was an early teacher of a Unitarian idea. 
Uh, that led to the development of religious liberals. And then I always like to point out that in the early 19th century, you'll hear a lot of evangelicals say, well, the greatest evangelist of the Second Great Awakening was Charles Grandison Finney. But Charles Grandison Finney was the greatest heretic of the Second Great Awakening. He did not believe in total depravity. He believed that every baby was born as pure as Adam was originally created, and they could uh, theoretically uh, live a perfect life. And so if man is perfectible, then what you have to do is encourage him uh, and motivate him to stay perfect. And if man is perfectible, then group of people are perfectible, and therefore society is perfectible, and we can bring in a utopia. And in his view, it would be Christ who would bring in the utopia, and then Jesus would come. It's a post-millennial idea. And, and it has led to a lot of horrors in our history because his idea was that we need to just solve these national sins and if we can solve these national sins, then we can become a perfect kingdom, and then Jesus will come back. And it's all grounded in works. So his view of sin was not biblical. His view of our condemnation was not biblical. His view of the atonement was not biblical. His view of human ability was not biblical. This guy's a pure heretic. His view of what Christ did on the cross isn't, isn't biblical. And yet you have people today, lots of people, who will tell you that Charles Charles Finney was um, was a great evangelist, but he's got a false gospel. So the issue is to go back to the Old Testament and look at what transpires on the Day of Atonement when the blood from the sacrifice is placed on the mercy seat on the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. So... What do we learn from this? Number one, atonement comes from the English phrase at one which emphasizes reconciliation. But second, the blood sacrifice relates to the payment of a price. That's what redemption means. It always has that idea of the payment of a price. So three, the mercy seat relates to the satisfaction of God's righteousness and justice. Propitiation, which is a different, uh, slightly different concept. And fourth, because God is propitiated by the payment of a penalty, the debt of sin is canceled. That's called expiation. And we've studied that in Colossians 1, 12 through 14 as we were studying through forgiveness. So what we see is that atonement is a made-up word to relate to the totality of what Christ did on the cross. He redeemed us. He paid the price. Expiation, sin, the penalty for sin was canceled. Propitiation, the character of God is satisfied. His righteousness and justice look on the cross and they're satisfied. Man is reconciled then to God and we have, uh, there is forgiveness or the cancellation of sin, the penalty of sin for all mankind as we have gone through. That doesn't make them saved. What the death of Christ on the cross does is it makes man savable because Christ has paid the penalty for sin. But they're still spiritually dead, 
and they are still unrighteous. So the, the only way they can be saved is to be born again, which happens when they, an individual trusts Christ as Savior, and when they are given the righteousness of Christ and declared righteous or just. So those come out of this. So this is just an introduction to atonement. And what I want to do this morning is look at the Old Testament pictures of substitutionary atonement. When we go back into the Old Testament, what we often see are pictures that God creates uh, in history to help us understand these more abstract doctrines. So you have a lot of what is referred to as typology, These are various different pictures of different doctrines related to the person of Christ, the work of Christ. For example, the matzah, the unleavened bread, is a picture of the humanity of Christ. And the the fact that it is without leaven is a picture of his sinfulness. We get to the cup in the Lord's table. It is a picture of his... Uh, shed blood, that there's a physical death on the cross, but that in turn represents that spiritual separation from God, which occurred between 12 noon and 3 p.m. So so we have all of this typology in the Old Testament that helps us see what Christ was to do on the cross. So we'll look first at Abraham and Isaac in Genesis 22, which is where I had you turn to begin with, Genesis chapter 22, and then we'll look at uh, Day of Atonement and some other sacrifices briefly, and then we'll conclude with Isaiah chapter 53. So let's go to Genesis chapter 22. This is our first Old Testament uh, illustration. Now, when I taught through Genesis uh, many years ago, I realized there were about 13 different tests in Abraham's life. They were all related to that initial promise that God gave to Abraham that it was through him that God would make many nations and that his seed, his descendants, would be innumerable. But there was a little problem that neither Sarah nor Abraham were able to have children. And so another 20 years or 25 years goes by before uh, Sarah finally becomes pregnant and gives birth to, uh, to, um, to Isaac. Now, the problem here is that, that through the, most of these tests, the test had to do with whether Abraham would really trust God for the promised son. And once the promised son comes, he grows to adulthood. He's around, I would say, that at the time of the episode in chapter 22, Isaac is either in his 20s or his 30s. He is a young man. He is a strong young man, as we will see as we read through this section. So in this final test... Abraham trusts God. He has seen, he has made many fail, failings in his own life trying to come up with other ways to have a son other than just trusting in God. And part of that uh, was the situation with Hagar. Sarah said, "I can't do it, but take your take my maid and um, uh, have relations with her, and then her son will will raise up to be the seed." 
and of course that was Ishmael, and he's the father of part of the uh, part of the Arabs, and that's part of the background to the whole conflict between uh, Jews and Arabs. This uh, attempt to provide a secondary solution uh, on on Abraham's part. So finally, Abraham gets to this place where he's going to trust God, and God says he's going to test him. It came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And Abraham responds, Lord, here I am. Then he said, take now your son, your only son. Who else has an only son? God does. The Lord Jesus Christ is his only begotten son. So there's parallels. Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah. Now, this is Moriah in the Hebrew. Uh, pay attention to this. There's a word play here on Moriah. The, the initial letter M at the beginning tells you they've taken a verb and converted it to a noun so that the root is going to be the R Y, Y, the doubling of the Y, and the H. That's the root. It's a verb that mostly means to see, but sometimes it has the idea of making provision for something. So just hold that thought, and we'll come back to it before we're done. It's it's so interesting to see the word plays that the Holy Spirit uses to make certain points for us. So take your son, your only son, go to the land of Moriah. Those who have been to Israel, the land of Moriah is the center part of where the Temple Mount is. Uh, that was part of the uh, part of Moriah. And offer him there as a burnt offering. Now there's another key word. What's a burnt offering? Well, first of all, you would put the animal on the altar and you would slit its throat. And when he died, then you would burn, everything would be burned up, and, and it was a picture of, of total, uh, total uh, obedience to God, a total commitment to God. Everything goes to God in my life. And so he's to be a burnt offering. Then we'll skip down to verse 6. So Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. Now, if you're going to have a sacrifice of a of a ram or a sheep, uh, how much wood are you going to need in order to completely burn up that lamb or sheep? You've got to have a good deal of wood. So that's why I say this isn't some 16 or 17-year-old kid, which is how often Isaac is portrayed. He is a tall, strong man, and he is able to carry this heavy load, and he's got to carry it a significant distance I uh, because in the in the text what we see um, uh, that in verse 4 which I didn't put up here then on the third day so they've been traveling from Beersheba in the south and on the third day Abram listed, lifted his eyes and saw the place afar off now I have been to this location if you there's a there's a road that this is what that uh, film Route 60 the biblical highway was all about the way of the patriarchs that runs along the basic mountain ridge from north to south in Israel it's also called the way of the patriarchs and one year I was taken down and we go down to 
the way of the patriarchs south of Jerusalem, south of Bethlehem, and off on a beaten on a dirt road, you go down that road, and there is a place that has a covering over it, a, a shelter covering over it. it. Looks almost like a old roadside park type of place, but it, instead of a picnic table, it has a mikvah. A mikvah is a place for ceremonial washing. And this is the first place, if you're traveling from the south, the first place you would be where you were close enough to where you could see the Temple Mount. And so through the centuries, as Jewish pilgrims were coming to uh, it, to the Temple Mount for, for the various feast days, they would wake up that morning and they would have a ritual bath, a cleansing before they would go on to the holiest of places in Israel, which was the, the temple. So this was the location where Abram would have lifted his eyes and seen uh, the temple mount afar off. So you're looking at about 10, 8 to 10 miles. So Isaac is going to carry the load of wood on his back for 8 or 10 miles. And Abraham uh, took the fire in his hand, so he would have had that in some sort of metal container, uh, not having matches or a big lighter to light the fire when he got there, and a knife, and the two of them went together. But Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, see, he's not dumb. Wait a minute, We're, we got everything here but the sacrifice. Where's the animal? And uh, for the burnt offering. And Abraham sa- said, my son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. So the two of them went together. The word provide is a form of the root of Moriah. See, Moriah is the noun, and it's a place of provision. And here you have Yareh, which is to see or to provide, and God will provide. So you see this theme based on that name of the, of the, of the mountain. Then they came to the place of which God had told him, and Abram built an altar there, placed the wood in order, and he bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar upon the wood. So in Jewish tradition, this is referred to as the binding of, of uh, Isaac bound his son, laid him on the altar upon the, upon the wood. And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. Now, I'd just like to be there and, and find out what the conversation was. Hebrews gives us a clue, and that is that, that Abraham believed that God could raise him from the dead that if he actually went through with the sacrifice, God would raise Isaac from the dead because he was so convinced now that it was in Isaac that his seed would be named. And so this is a test from God. People will say, well, God, you know, it's awful cruel. He wants him to sacrifice his son. Well, you're not, you're not reading the story right. God is testing him. He's been trying to make sure Abraham really trusts him about this promise. And so he's willing to give him one last test, and God never intended for him to sacrifice Isaac. He just wanted to know if Abraham would be so convinced that God would would carry out his promise that he would do whatever God said to do. 
And so this is what happened. And the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. So again, he says, Hanani, here I am. And he said, do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Then Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and there behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it for a burnt offering instead of his son. So the Hebrew word there is this word down in the panel below, tachat, which means in place of, instead of. So it is a substitutionary uh, sacrifice that is given, the ram. And the ram is a picture of the it's the picture of later sacrifices and a picture of the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. And then in verse 14, Abraham called the name of the place, the Lord will provide. And that word for provide is this word up here. It is in, in the form in the text. It's Yireh. Jehovah Jireh is how it's translated into King James. It's Yahweh Yireh in the Hebrew. It's from Ra'ah, meaning to see or to provide. And it's the root, as you can see, uh, for the uh, Resh and the Ayat uh, and the Yud and the Hay uh, is Moriah. So it's the whole focus here is God's provision of a substitute. It was a burnt offering. So then we'll go to a second passage uh, dealing with the offerings in uh, in Leviticus. So remember in our passage that Jesus was given as a sacrifice and an offering. So here we have the burnt offering. And the picture of the burnt offering or the description of it in Leviticus 1, 3, and 4. Uh, they're told if his offering is a burnt sacrifice or burnt offering of the herd. Let him offer a male without blemish. Again, that's a picture of the fact that the Savior would be without sin. He shall offer it of his own free will at the door of the tabernacle of meeting before the Lord. Then he shall put his hand on the head of the burnt offering. Now that word for put his hand on the head really has the idea of pushing down on the head. And it's emphasizing that the, that the sins of the sacrificer are being transferred to the animal and the pushing down indicates the weight of the sin upon the animal. He shall put his hand, uh, on the head of the burnt offering and it will be accepted on his behalf to make atonement for him. So this is the the idea. It's a substitution. Now, what exactly is atonement? This is from the word kafar, and it means to cover. Uh, It's translated to make atonement, but it means to cleanse or to wipe clean with the idea of forgiveness. Here are some further definitions given that atone means to make expiation, sometimes to make amends for something, to purify, but it is translated by katharismos in the Septuagint, which means purification or cleansing. In BDB, which is a slightly older Hebrew lexicon, 
it uh, it means perhaps cover, but primarily related to the Arabic cognate for wiping clean. And so in Exodus 30, verse 10, as we see the description of the Day of Atonement given uh, at, at the time of the law, uh, this was in the future, and Aaron shall make atonement upon its home, its horns once a year with the blood of the sin offering of atonement. Once a year he shall make atonement upon it throughout your generations. So because there wasn't a permanent sacrifice yet, not till Christ, there's this, every year there had to be the repetition of the day of atonement to cleanse from the cleanse the nation of the intentional sins that had been committed. And so the blood from uh, the one uh, one sacrifice would be placed on the uh, mercy seat that covered the Ark of the Covenant. The Day of Atonement is described in Leviticus 16, 5 through 9. There we read, And he shall take from the congregation of the children of Israel two kids of the goats as a sin offering, and one ram as a burnt offering. So here's the picture here. Here's the uh, one bull and then the two kids of the goats. Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself in his place. So that's a substitutionary idea. And make atonement for himself and for his house. So that's this substitutionary idea in his place. And he shall take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. Then Aaron shall cast lots. Uh, He's going to flip a coin uh, for the two goats to determine which one is going to be sacrificed and which one is going to be the scapegoat. And so he'll bring the goat on which the Lord's lot fell and offer it as a sin offering. And then the blood from that was what was taken into the Ark of the Covenant. So one is sacrificed, and the other is turned loose. It's taken so far away that he can't find his way back, taken out into the middle of the desert and turned loose because the the priest has put his hands on both of these kids, these goats, and he has confessed the sin of the people, and they've been transferred to the goats. So you can't do this. You can't... uh, display both in one goat because one's got to die in their place and the other one is going to demonstrate that God has forgotten it. He's removed it completely from his memory. As far as the east is from the west, God separates our sins from us. And so this is the picture that we have here. And I was reading one uh, article uh, which was uh, trying to refute substitutionary ideas in all of these passages and the woman who wrote it said well this just doesn't this whole thing just doesn't make sense at all well that's because she said if it was really substitution it would all only have one goat well you can't have a goat die and and walk away into the wilderness at, at the same time you have to have two goats to demonstrate that 
So Leviticus 5, 6, he shall bring his trespass offering to the Lord for his sin, which he has committed, a female from the flock, a lamb, or a kid of the goats as a sin offering. So the priest shall make atonement for him concerning his sin. So all of this has that substitutionary idea also in Leviticus 4.20. So the priest shall make atonement for or in place of them, and it shall be forgiven them. So again, we see these many facets of atonement that the word, the English word was just made up as a sort of a summary term that would cover all of these different facets, redemption, expiation, propitiation, reconciliation, and forgiveness. And then we come to our third passage, which is Isaiah 53, 7 to 12. Now, Isaiah 53 is one of the most clear statements, prophecies in the Old Testament of the work of Christ, who is in this passage presented as the servant of the Lord. Now, in about the 11 or 1200s, you had a couple of rabbis come along and invent a new interpretation. And that interpretation was that the servant here is Israel, and Israel is giving its life for the sins of the world. And that is, and I'll show you why that doesn't work, but that's what you'll hear in, if you're talking to somebody, uh, who is G- Jewish. So when we get to Isaiah 53 5, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. That's a clear substitutionary idea. And it's always a, uh, a singular pronoun. Although their response might be, well, well, the singular pronoun is often used collectively for all of, of Israel. Uh, okay, well, we'll see why that doesn't work in just a minute. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. Clearly substitutionary ideas. Verse 6, all of us like sheep have gone astray. All of us, Isaiah is saying every single uh, Israelite, every single human being has gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. That is clearly a substitutionary idea. It's not just an example. It's not just demonstrating the moral government of God. It is showing that the iniquity of others was put on the one who was without sin. Verse 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. This is the picture of Jesus when he's taken uh, by Pilate and taken before the crowds. He did not, and he's beaten, he's whipped. And he is not, uh, he doesn't utter a word. Verse 8, he was taken uh, from prison and from judgment. And who will declare his generation? And who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken. Well, wait a minute. If the servant is Israel my people, then how can uh, 
he be cut off, that Israel's cut off for the transgressions of Israel. See, that just doesn't work. Because this is, in the rabbinical interpretation, this is supposed to be uh, Israel, uh, uh, the entire nation of Israel, corporate Israel, is uh, the suffering servant. But he can't be both the suffering servant and the object for the death of the suffering servant. That just doesn't work. So the corrected translation I have here is yet who of his generation considered that he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgressions of my people to whom the blow was due. See, he is a substitute. And so this makes it very, very clear. Now, next time we're going to come back and we're going to look at the New Testament passages that emphasize uh, substitutionary atonement. And all this is designed to help us understand this whole pattern that if we are to forgive one another as God, for Christ's sake, forgave us, and if we are to love one another as Christ loved us and gave himself for us, we have to understand what happened at the cross because that's the key to being able to understand what this love is and what forgiveness is. So the pattern always goes to what Christ did on the cross from his what is referred to as the humiliation of Christ where he leaves heaven and he takes on humanity, the kenosis passage, which we spent time studying uh, not too long ago in Philippians chapter 2, that all of that, he enters into human history willingly, voluntarily limiting the use of his uh, divine attributes. Uh, He willingly limits those so that he can complete the work of salvation. And he does that because he loves us. We're the priority. And so that teaches us what it means to love others, to seek the highest and best good as God defines it, and doing that um, uh, without regard to what it might cost us. That is the picture of biblical love. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we thank you that we have so many passages, both predictions in the Old Testament and fulfillment passages in the New Testament that demonstrate that Jesus Christ paid the penalty for our sins so that that eternal separation from you has been paid for. But the reality is that we are still condemned if we have never trusted in Christ as Savior. The eternal, con- the eternal penalty has been paid, but that still leaves us spiritually dead, and it leaves us without righteousness. And so, Father, the responsibility we have is to believe in Jesus, at which time we are instantly made alive together with him, and we receive the I- immediate imputation of Christ's righteousness so that we are declared justified. And so the only solution to the sin problem to the problem of our spiritual death is that we have to trust in Jesus Christ as our Savior, knowing that he paid the penalty for us in our place. He took that upon himself, a substitutionary sacrifice. So, Father, we pray that we may understand this, 
that we may communicate this as we communicate the gospel to those who need to understand it, that we can teach this to our children to understand these important images that we've seen from the Old Testament, the, the story of Isaac and the substitutionary ram, the story of the Day of Atonement and the substitutionary uh, young goats and the placing of sin on one and then the cleansing that takes place so that the sin, sin is completely removed from us. So, Father, we pray that this will be clearly understood by everyone who has heard this today. And we pray that if anyone's listening now or listening online later that that has never trusted Christ as Savior, that they may clearly understand that salvation is only by trusting in Jesus Christ. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. So, Father, we pray that you would use this communication of the gospel to bring some to salvation. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.